this doesn't make any sense. And the more you tether yourself to the linear business, which this deal would do, um, the greater the sort of albatross around your neck and the more the market's going to hate it. And indeed, like the market reaction to the news was profoundly negative for both companies. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm John Kelly in for Peter Hamby. It's Monday, December 25th. Merry Christmas to all who celebrate. And if it's Monday, you know it's Media Monday. And I'm sitting in the anchor chair, taking over for Peter today, talking with Dylan Byers about his latest reporting on what's going on with Paramount. Is this David Zaslov's deal to lose? Well, Jerry Cardinal and David Ellison find a way to steal NAI at the last possible minute. Where does Jeff Zucker factor into all this? Could he be running Paramount one day? And we also talk about what's going on at the Washington Post, where 240 people recently exited and Will Lewis will be entering as the new CEO at the top of the year. All that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the Powers That Be. It's Monday, December 25th. Merry Christmas, fellow pucksters. It's John Kelly here. Peter Hamby's off enjoying the holiday. But there's no rest for the weary. Dylan Byers and I are adequately filling in to talk about some of the more fascinating stories on the media landscape. Paramount and Zazz, which Dylan and Peter talked about on Friday. And I also want to get into some of the news and notes percolating out of the Washington Post. That's one of my favorite stories in media these days. As Will Lewis prepares to descend on one of Washington, in fact, absolutely, certainly Washington's most story storied media establishment amid 250 layoffs, $100 million in losses, and a whole lot of questions around the future of Sally Busby, among others. But Dylan, let's start with this topic on everyone's mind. What is Sherry Redstone going to do? I'm curious how your reporting and thinking has evolved since you and Peter chatted on Friday. Obviously, Sherry and Bagish are trying to make a market for Paramount. Everyone who listens to this show and reads Puck and reads you and Bill and Matt knows the fundamentals. The company's worth about ten or eleven billion dollars. It's got fifteen billion dollars in equity. National Amusements is you know could be bought for a song, one or two, but probably has another eleven billion in debt and liabilities. And who the hell would want to buy all these cable channels? CMT, VH1, Nickelodeon. I don't know, man. Um, <laughs> what's the latest thinking? Yeah, I mean, one thing that's interesting, I mean, it was not that long ago that um, that David Zaslav was engineering the the Warner Media Discovery tie-up. And when, when news of that first hit, the rea- you know, at that point, it, it everything was pretty much baked and, and you had the sense that this was inevitable. And so the post, the, you know, the post-breaking news reaction is to basically figure out what this whole thing is going to look like. Now, 
in the wake of the report of what is, you know, what is much, much, potentially a much more sort of like early stage anodyne meeting, like lunch meeting between Zaslav and, and, and Bob Bakish, you actually have um, different analysis playing out, which is, hmm. is this even going to happen? How serious is this? And and I think most importantly, should it happen? So what, what fascinates me here is there's such a delta between the Zaz theory of the case, which is um, greater scale, greater synergies, obviously that's going to translate to a lot of people losing their jobs. Um, and then, you know, we have the NFL and we can combine X, Y, and Z and, and Max gets bigger because it, it takes all of the Paramount Plus stuff and we tie up CNN and CBS News, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And there's that view. And then over on the other side, you have the sort of like view probably best articulated by Rich Greenfield, um, including on on our colleague Matt's podcast, The Town, which is like, this doesn't make any sense. And the more you tether yourself to the linear business, which this deal would do, um, the greater the sort of albatross around your neck and the more the market's going to hate it. And indeed, like the market reaction to the news was profoundly negative for both companies. And so it's it's interesting. We're sort of in the holidays now. Nothing is going to happen for a while. And we're, we're sort of dealing with this like, you know, usually in a sweepstakes like this, it's kind of like, okay, who's going to pay the most money? And and then who's going to get the asset and who's going to win? And I think now in in the wake of everything that Hollywood has endured in, in the, amid the collective wisdom about just how precipitous the linear business is, I think a lot of people are just scratching their heads and being like, what the hell is going on here? And does this does a deal like this even make sense? But I'm, uh, John, I'm curious in your thoughts. Oh, I love this. I, I love all parts of it, to be honest with you. I love the Redbird angle here. I, I love the idea. This is an investment banker's fantasy. And, and you know, Jerry Cardinal is a guy that we have a lot of respect for here. Uh, I think he's he's looking at this as um, uh, both a opportunity to unload and move assets. And I think he's also, I would surmise he's someone who's, who's looking to find the real value inside Paramount. Uh, and I think that he's I, and I'm and I'm like speculating here, Dylan. I, I presume that he, he, his lawyers have figured out what Bill Cohan figured out, which is that um, the NIA play is re- really complicated. Um, it's not a two or three billion dollar deal. In fact, I've, I've heard that uh, Sherry wants a meaningful uh, amount of money. Uh, so you know, maybe all in with the debt, it's 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 fifteen. If Paramount is is twenty five, you know, it's unclear. Um, if that Topco level opportunity is going to make sense, and God knows uh, that Cardinal is a very smart guy, he's going to be working with Byron Trot to make sure that Warren Buffett gets a premium. I don't think Warren Buffett's going to uh, roll over his stake in Paramount Global at, at 50% of, of what he bought it at. Uh, so does you know does Jerry buy the Topco? Does Jerry try to go in at the Paramount level? Um, I I think that's exquisitely interesting. The the Zaz thing, however. Um, I think that Zaslav is more motivated. And sometimes in life and in deal-making, things come down to who wants it more. I completely get the Rich Greenfield point of view. The cash flow situation at Paramount is terrifying. But David Zaslav has proved a number of times in his career that he wants to be the guy in charge. Don't forget that that the, the, the creation story of WBD is the minnow swallowing the shark. And... 
I think David also has some sensitivity here to what Sherry wants. I don't think Sherry wants to go away. I think the WBD can offer her a board seat, the potential to, to take some cash for her family, but also roll over some to make more money in a potential exit of, of uh, WBD mount, Zaz mount, what we've been calling it, um, down the line. And I also... I'm sure that uh, Gunnar Wiedenfels has his eyes wide open, and, and Zaslav wouldn't be discussing this with uh, with Begish if, if if Gunnar wasn't on side here. And and I should give you credit, Dylan. You you sort of pre broke this news months ago that they were talking about this much more seriously. Um, WBD needs a deal, and. The Comcast deal, I think, is not happening. I think Zaslav wants to be in control. I don't think he wants to work for Brian Roberts. I think he wants to buy this asset, and I think that he will make the clear-eyed decisions that Bakish and Sherry have been way too afraid to make. I think they will scrap things. I think it will be brutal. I think there are going to be elements of the cable portfolio that just go away. I think there's a fast option for Max. They're going to scrap Paramount Global. No one wants to lose $500 million a quarter on a streaming service. Forget about it. Um, so I think that there's a real opportunity here. And don't forget, like, Zaslav loves being in this thing. What was that old Beto O'Rourke quote? I was born to be in it. it was yeah. pre preposterously pompous. <laughs> but, but I think uh, true with Zaslav, and he's not big enough. And if they whiff on the Paramount deal then there are many fewer options. I don't think that Zaz's, uh, you know, the, the new houses in Malone want to uh, get excited over a Fubo deal. Um, so I think Zaz is very, very motivated. These deals die a zillion times before they come back to life. So th this may take a lot of twists and turns, but um, I think that he's, he's in it to make it happen. Yeah, no, I know. I, I think he is. I mean, I think the, the interest here is certainly very real it it is sort of funny to the, the amount of sort of like conspiratorial thinking about his motivations here and is he trying to smoke out brian roberts um as if you would need to have mm -hmm. a lunch with bob bakish in order to do that uh the, there there's a lot and it it seems to me i i like your thesis i think it's probably right but it does seem like there's a lot up in the air and a lot can happen and i also think that um that Skydance and Redbird are are pretty serious about it too. I think one sort of compelling subplot that we've probably not explored quite enough here is that if you really think about what a battle for Paramount between um, WBD and Skydance is, it 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 is sort of a revenge fantasy uh, potentially for Jeff Zucker, who might one day and you know if if Skydance and Redbird get it, might one day end up being put on the top of Paramount. Um, so I don't know. There's there's a lot. There's there's a lot to pull from here, but I do I, I think I might be more sympathetic than you are to the Rich Greenfield thesis that like this uh, there's just there just seems to be a lot of a lot more damage that's going to be done to these companies, and it does seem like in and in, no matter who gets it, the amount of like cut, staff cuts that are going to happen here are going to be brutal. I mean, I was talking to some media executives yesterday who said like these are companies that could effectively lose you know, well over half of their current employee base in, in the sort of need to like scale down these companies, depending on how this goes. There's no question. Rich is not wrong here. Um, you know, look no further than the stock price of the four or five largest pure play media companies. And you'll realize that this is not where investors or the, the you know, vanguards uh, and fidelities of the world want to be long term exposed, right? Like there, there's a correction that's happening here. And 
the um, the right sizing is brutal. I, I like I'm not trying to suggest anything otherwise, and there are a ton of legacy costs. I mean, I think even just the early reporting that's come out about um, the obligations and the warrants at Paramount in the indentures, are, you know, suggest that like. This is not going to be clear cut. Um, all the work that went into merging these two companies. Oh, my God. I mean, y- years of fool's errands as, as um, it gets picked apart piece by piece. But here's the one. Um, so I think like let's all swear to be um, adults and hold all these things uh, to be true in our minds. That Rich Greenfield's right. That um, that there is a, a possibility that, that that Zaslav needs this more than Jerry, and that uh, also that, that for Jerry to do it, and there's a huge opportunity in um, the value they can extract from from taking apart parts of Paramount. And I agree with you. I think the Zucker thing's not a crazy idea at all. Um, but the capital that would be needed, whether it's a consortium or they have to raise a lot of money from uh, creditors to to do it, I think it just gets more complicated. Um, the the question for me and is. It is the you know one to two billion to twenty five billion to maybe thirty billion. But the premium question is, what's Sherry's number, and and what will she take in cash versus what will she take in stock? The um, I've been very interested to see this. Is this may be of interest to to only me and maybe you and Bill and Matt and a couple other people. But I've been very interested to see that it seems like Byron Trot, who is again the the investment banker of our time. Um, Buffett's former banker Goldman, who is now Michael Dell's partner uh, at their boutique in Chicago, seems to be the one running this. And they've got a, a $125 million pref in, um, in Paramount Global. REA, who was, you know, Sherry's banker for years and um, advised on, on the, you know, the creation of Paramount Global, is, has not been um, as at least vocally or, or, or visibly involved here. So I wonder if, um, if Trot, as the new uh, face of this deal or, you know, uh, advisor to this is, um, is able to offer a more sanguine yet realistic appraisal of what's possible here. Cause, uh, Sumner died with a net worth of like, you know, five or so billion dollars. Um, it's about 20% of that. Now I, I don't see any deal getting Sherry to that outcome. So yeah, and I think Merry I, Christmas, Dylan. Yeah, indeed, indeed. I do think one thing you highlight too: the difference between the cash that uh, that Jerry can put up versus the the stock that David would need to deal with. I think is uh, it might be an important thing. I mean, whatever Sherry might want in terms of how she comes out of this, and, and indeed, you're right; she might want you know influence and options and all that. It might also just be that she's willing to take whoever can give her the most money, and and in 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 the event that that's true the cash might be meaningful there. Well, we'll see. Uh, Dylan, let's take a quick eggnog break and we'll be right back to talk about the Washington Post. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. 
All right, we're back, Dylan. I want to ask you about your recent line of reporting on the continued agony inside the, the Washington Post, both, both the newsroom and the executive suite. Um, let me just paint a bit of a picture for our readers to, to get you situated here. As I understand it, uh, Patty Stonecipher was an incredibly effective interim CEO. She's giving way to Will Lewis. She's done a lot of the dirty work for him. Um, 240-something people accepted buyouts. But the mood in the Post newsroom, which had been pretty bleak for a while um, as they lost talent and I think weren't able to innovate uh, in step with the times, is consistently um, downtrodden. And we have some questions as well about whether Will Lewis can outrun his relationship with the Murdochs, uh, particularly during those icky uh, phone hacking scandal years. Uh, What's the lay of the land, my friend? Yeah, you know, it's weird, right? It's um, the guild, (laughs) the guild at the Washington Post finally reached an agreement. Uh, It's sort of like Christmas miracle here that this finally came to an end. Um, So maybe they'll go away for a little bit. Certainly, we've got people are going to be coming back into the office in January with um, 240, 250 of their colleagues no longer sitting at those desks. So I, I think the I think people, the you know, the post is going to start off the year, um, in a pretty bad place, and I think there are going to be a lot of a lot of hopes are going to be pinned on Will Lewis coming in, and look, much like Mark Thompson at CNN, there are certain advantages you have if you are coming in on the heels of someone who um, was, you know, either demonstrably a failure at their job or at least somebody <laughs> who got blamed for the, the failures of your institution, whether it be CNN or the Post. And I think that there is a, um, I think there's a general sense of optimism surrounding Will Lewis's arrival. I think that he... Um, at the very least, it is a sign that there is sort of some someone is thinking of a strategy here that is longer than just like Patty's interim. You know, how do I how do I sort of write the ship and do the dirty work? But I think there's also a lot of trepidation. I mean, it, it, it's it's really hard to come back from you know losing a hundred million dollars a year, which in, unless Will does something really smart, is something that could just sort of happen in perpetuity. And uh. I, I there has been a lot of churn there has been there's been no real strategy on the editorial side to diversify beyond the sort of politics and policy coverage that the paper does really well but of course that so many people in Washington do do really well and I don't think I don't think anyone at the post really understands what their what their edge is heading into 2024 so I think much like you know, CNN, where everyone is sort of hoping that Mark Thompson will articulate a vision in, you know, January or Q1 of 2024. I think everyone at the Post seems very eager for, for Will Lewis to arrive and sort of help them understand um, where the paper is going and, and that there, and that there really is a strategy beyond just the sort of um, status quo that they've lived in over the course of the past few years. Yeah, I was just doing the math as you were talking, Dylan. 240 employees, I'm making a sort of average of uh, what I think that they, they probably make. It's about you know 40 to $45 million in savings there. So that's not even half of 
of the whole and the balance sheet right now. Um, and I, I think you're, you're right to talk about the editorial strategy. That's completely part of it. But the economic strategy is is the, the sort of more challenging and honestly surprising piece. You know, when you think about, I was talking to somebody about this the other day, so it's fresh in my mind. Uh, the Washington Post was a complacent place when um, when Jim Vandehei left and, and built Politico, right? And he, and he built it because of that. There were, there were 30 national, you know, correspondents who sort of d- didn't think it was their job to worry about the future of the business. And maybe it wasn't. Uh, and, and, and Jim created a new world and then obviously did it again at Axios. And along the way, I think Jim, uh, among others, helped uh, create a sense of how consumer behavior was changing and created a, a, a format innovation, you know, in email um, that uh, appealed to uh, a sort of influential audience that was very appealing for corporate social responsibility advertisers, a huge economically viable engine. I mean, you know, Politico itself makes a couple hundred million dollars now, and I'm sure Playbook itself is probably a 30 or $40 million line of business. Where is that at the post? You know, what, what, what's their attempt? It, it, the Daily 202 doesn't seem to do that. And, and why aren't they hellbent on figuring that out? Uh, you know, why, why don't they create their own punch bowl? They have all this talent lying around the building to do that. You know, um, and there are other niche areas where they have unfair competitive advantages. So uh, that's one piece. And then and we alluded to this in the beginning of the show. Uh, I tend to be very sensitive about not confusing business with buzz. I think that there, um, there, there are different factors that are, are often confused in in media. But boy, the buzz that the Washington Post had during the Barron era has just been so unbelievably muted. In this conversation I had with um, uh, with a DC person the other day, he, he was asking me what the um, what the the view is in among New York media about the post, and I said I don't think people even really think about it. Um, you you may agree or disagree with that, but it seems like there is just this sort of strange finger pointing that's going on um, within the newsroom, where where there are a lot of disengaged, disenchanted reporters who are blaming news administration and management, and yet at the same time. Uh, the the coin of the realm, you know, the, the sort of market making journalism that they're known for, seems to be um, at the very least. And I'm not saying they don't do it. That's obviously it's incredible talent in that room, but it's not breaking through the way it did only a couple years ago. No, I think that's I think that's evident. I mean, I think that the you know one of the easy in many ways like the the easiest and and best evidence is the anecdotal evidence how much are you actually engaging with the washington post how much are people talking about the washington post i i, I don't think that's happening and i think it's happening not happening look again the editorial there are a lot of great reporters there who do great work but um the lack of editorial innovation coupled with the lack of business innovation and and just from a user experience standpoint to a marketing standpoint, the complacency feels palpable. And it's it's really strange because the, you, you would think, <laughs> you would think that if anyone could afford to make the investments in improving the product, um, it would be it would be Bezos in the Washington Post, but there just doesn't seem to be anyone there who wants to do it. And of course, you know, Marty Baron himself spoke to his own frustrations with trying to get Fred Ryan tr- to, you know, and, and Bezos to like mm-hmm. think about some of these things and how can how can we improve the product? How can we make this product indispensable in people's lives, even outside of election cycles? And it's not clear that 
Fred Fred either never tried hard enough with Bezos or or um he didn't make compelling of enough case but mm-hmm. for whatever reason he came back to Marty and said um you know I I effectively shrugged his sh- shoulders and said I did my best. I think the one big question is like what ex- what mandate has Bezos given Will Lewis and what is he what is he capable of doing? So far all of the talk from Will Lewis has been and and even from Bezos himself has been about uh, you know returning to profit profitability. This is not exactly the sort of locker room speech that I think gets journalists really excited about going to work every day. But in any event, it is that it is that the first thing that needs to happen um, as in, as the post starts starts to think about sort of like it's it's more long term strategy. But but I do that's not something that they're going to get figured out over the course of this election cycle. Maybe they can at least lay the groundwork for it um, for the years to come. Profitable media is good media. I remember, uh, I think that was one of Justin Smith's mantras when he came to Bloomberg and um, he had to convince Mike that uh, they shouldn't be losing tens of millions of dollars a year on the media enterprise, even if it was essentially marketing for the terminal as it was back then. And I'm sure um, I've spent some time with uh, many billionaires in, in my life, Dylan, you have too. Uh, they don't like losing money on anything, and I can assure you that edict number one from uh, Bezos to Will Lewis is um, let's uh, get rid of that $100 million loss right now. But um, we will return to this uh, early and often. Dylan, Merry Christmas. I want to uh, release you back to your family and to your eggnog, and um, I'll, uh, I'll see you in the Slack, buddy. Merry Christmas. All right. Merry Christmas, John. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.